Welcome back to Emerge. This week's episode is with Jonathan Reams. Jonathan is a central node in the field of adult development. As editor-in-chief of the Integral Review, he is a major player in the sense-making of the larger community, and his writings have been invaluable for my own sense-making on the complex terrain of the academic study of how adults get more mature. This conversation is a great follow-up to my previous conversation with Robert Keegan. We take some of the ideas that we explored in that conversation and go further, explore them further, and we take some of those ideas and trouble them, adding nuance and ambiguity that, frankly, make this whole inquiry harder to pin down. So you can find a collection of Jonathan's writings, which I highly recommend if you want to take a deeper dive, at jonathanreams.com. You can find a link there in the show notes. As I mentioned last time, I'm going to be releasing um, two more episodes after this in pretty quick succession uh, with Andrew Taggart and then with Soryu Foral. And I'm trying to get them out pretty quick because I'm going to be probably by the time I release the episode with Soryu, I'm going to be in a long solo retreat, probably of about 75 days or so. Uh, And so I will not be on the internet. Uh, Forgive me if I don't respond to your emails. But I do have a bunch of really fun conversations, really interesting conversations, some of which I've already recorded, some of which I plan to record or have scheduled for when I come back out, um, probably in late May or early June. So look forward to that. Uh, In the meantime, I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Reams. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, that was one of my big takeaways. This is like my third or fourth, fourth circling retreat here at Maple. And um, yeah, there's this way that we can't help but reveal ourselves. And that's true, like all the time. But I think I'm, I, we tend to move so quickly that uh, we don't see it both in ourselves and in others. And um, I, it was—it really made me appreciate how you can become quite sensitive and perceptive and really see somebody, you know, warts and all clearly if you're if you're available to that perception. And um, really inspiring for me. Yeah. Actually. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how are you? How are you doing? Um, <laughs> a little bit dusty, but we're in the middle of uh, finalizing home renovations for a house, real estate house appraisal on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So my wife is painting in the hallway behind me now, and I'm putting up trim on the five new door frames and doors we put up and new wall board in the hallway. And mm-hmm. that's the most recent thing this week. Mm-hmm. Nice. Fine. <laughs> that sounds good. So it, it basically yeah. my holiday was all renovating and finishing up, <laughs> and and but it, but it it kind of relates to some of I think revealing oneself and and what we'll talk about in one way because a big thing for me has been that so I turned sixty shortly, mm-hmm. and I've been thinking a lot about this because when I was younger, um, you know, sixty was kind of the age where you got old. 
Um, mm. In the era when we we're all, you know, people were farmers and mm. you did a lot of manual labor, your body kind of started to wear out then and you tended to retire at about 65. Mm. And so I've always had this image that, you know, what would it be like in the future in 2020 when I'm actually entering old mm. age? Yeah. Now, I don't feel like that physically now. And of course, the mm. world has changed and I don't haven't worn my body out through physical labor for my whole life uh, for a reasonable amount but but preparing for that part of what i did was i spent the entire last year doing a series of kind of cleaning up finishing up cycles mm. of started renovation projects and finishing mm. upgrading a whole bunch of fundamental things like we mm. tore out all the old plumbing the drains mm. and the supply lines and redid them we did the bathroom and insulated the garage. We did all sorts of stuff. And for me, this has been very much a cycle of kind of completion to prepare for what new cycle of activity in life, what new spaces to enter, what ways to contribute await me and how to be really present to those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any uh, inklings or, or sense of that direction? Well, part of it, you know, when when we had our pre-chat, and then I've had some chats with other people too, is I see that one of the things of getting older is that you've just been around and have a little more history and a little more experience and are able to uh, pass on some things, mentor a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I see more of that kind of thing and more of maybe having a more public voice, um, not necessarily that I really am very public as a person, I'm actually quite private, but to to stand out for things a little more and advocate for things and build things up a little more. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, after our last conversation, I, I think that would be a very wise move. <laughs> Well, and and it was, you know, it's people like yourself and I have a number of other uh, people that I'm in contact with in that kind of 30, early 40s age range where Mm. these, they, people like yourself, I think, come with uh, an advantage in a way. You haven't had to go through or been enculturated into some of the things that those of us that are older dealt with. That was our Mm kind of dharmic path um Mm. and so you Mm. can stand on our shoulders and look up a little bit and how do we Mm. make a good foundation for that so it's stable and robust and yeah yeah i notice i get really excited when i hear that kind of possibility um and partly it's for me it seems so clear that one of the things and maybe the main thing that's needed in our world today is like more mature human beings. And for me, you know, I've been quote unquote working on my own maturity for the last decade, like intentionally, consciously. Mm-hmm. And like it's hard work and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of luck, it takes a lot of grace. And it takes a lot you know, of humiliation yeah. to bring humility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I feel so grateful for the people that were willing to humiliate me and are continuing to be willing to humiliate me. Um, but like, when I think of all of the time and effort 
that I've put into my own development. And then I think of how many human beings there are and how few of them care to consciously yeah. work on themselves yeah. and the scale of the problems that we're facing collectively. I, I, it, one of my, one of the few things that makes me hopeful is that somehow I can, and we can learn from people. Uh, we can kind of like synthesize ideas in a way that accelerates it so that people don't even have to take as long as I've taken. And I feel like I've been able to move a bit quicker because of the wisdom of people that I've known, you know, old, older folks that I've known. Who've- well, I mean, this it, it's interesting that I see a number of um, things like that going on. So one of the people that I'm in contact with now, he's um, Spanish, but uh, did his master's uh, degree thesis research with Robert Keegan on the relationship between happiness and stage development. And he's now kind of at the point in his mid-30s where he's ready to kind of start his own kind of business. And Mm. it's called Back to Human. Mm. And the idea is, of course, that a lot of the challenges that we have in our organizational life and our work life in general have to do with our inabilities and blind spots in terms of how we relate to each other and how we collaborate and how we build the kind of trust that enables high performance and these kind of things. And that there is a real need to be deliberately developmental. And then at the same time, I, when you were talking about, you know, how long it's taken you and so on, I think of my daughters who are in their mid thirties and you know, the paths they've taken and the work they've done on themselves, either kind of consciously, intentionally, or just through the challenges of their careers and relationships. And and how has that led them to these things? And then the the last one, I got an email from this woman I know in um, Los Angeles. She was in, um, she was in the Dick Van Dyke show. (laughs) as an actress, uh, and her husband was in Hollywood and producing and so on. And she got into making movies about crop circles and doing all sorts of things around And what her video was recently about, just saying she's been trying for the last 20, 30 years to find people who are kind of like you're describing, trying to make the way easier, trying to use their intelligence to kind of wake up to these kind of really important human issues and try to enable those people's message to get out for people to find that kind of work to tune into it so i see this going on at multiple generational levels in different domains um yeah yeah and so part of that's and and a lot of that is um uh, uh fundamental to the inspiration for this inquiry now that the podcast is on um and i think that's why you know you and i were connected because i i'm you know, for a while, been aware of this field of uh, adult development or human development, and and some of it has kind of trickled into my world. Like I've uh, read Immunity to Change. I, I'm familiar with Keegan's models, but I also know just from going a little bit further into that field, it's it's actually very complicated. There's lots of different models of human development, theories of human development. Uh, people disagree seemingly rather uh, vociferously about different <laughs> subtleties that seem to yes. both be a little bit like, um, I, I kind of think like, what's the big deal? And then sometimes I realize that I'm like, oh, that's a really big deal. And so it's just like, there's a lot there underneath the surface, at least for a lay person, that 
I'm really keen on bringing forward into the wider culture and um, kind of trying to harvest at this point, you know, it's a pretty new field, I would say, but trying to harvest at least at this point, some of the, what we now know, uh, where the field is at, so on and so forth. And so, and you seem like the perfect person to talk to because you, you you have such a broad scope of understanding with regards to the field. Um, and so, you know, knowing that listeners are going to be at different stages of their journey in relationship to this uh, study, I, I'd be curious if you could offer uh, a definition of like, what is this field uh, that you that you're you're involved with? Like, what 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 do you see as the purpose of it? Kind of. Well, well, let me. So, I think for that, there's so much um, tacit or implicit in any kind of um, entry point mm. in, into this. So, you you've come into it the way you have. I've come into it my own way. Other people, as you say, will be either you know in varying degrees of their journey, but everybody comes to it from somewhere. And so for me, it, it's important to set a little bit of context. And I think about this in terms of, you were saying, a relatively new field. And it's yes and no, because um, in some ways it feels new because people are just discovering it. But mm -hmm. you see that there are people who have been doing work in this area for decades um, there were people before them whose work they built on. And, and if you go back into, you know, kind of the beginnings in the modern era, this is 125 years ago when the first mm. uh, book on um, a developmental approach to psychology was published in 1894 and talked about things like subject-object relations and different mm. lines of development and these kind of things. And yet, at the same time, I have um, some colleagues who wrote a book called The Nordic Secret, and their inquiry into what made Scandinavian society as successful as it has been had a lot to do with an inquiry into the Enlightenment ideas and how those ideas actually parallel to a large degree the ideas of modern ego development. So going back to people like Shaftesbury and Goethe and so on, there is something about human maturity and development that is what people call perennial philosophy or perennial wisdom, because you can go all the way back to Plato and in other traditions, I'm sure you can go back much earlier hmm. and find that people have been talking about less mature and more mature ways of being human. So, with that um, framing for myself, I think there were two entry points. The first one was really around my own personal kind of uh, wrestling with the dissonance provided by certain types of experiences I had. And so, I'll tell you a story from uh, when I was 12 years old. Um, Prior to this, you know, I'd had a number of kind of, how would I say, philosophical insights, as young kids often do. You see the universe in ways that inspire science fiction or, you know, you're inspired by science fiction to think of the world in different ways. And you have all these crazy ideas. And I, I learned to stop asking my parents questions by the time I was about eight or nine. 
because I thought that was just frustrating for them and for me. <laughs> and I grew up in the Christian church in the Missouri Synod Lutheran, very conservative. And I remember when I was 12, I, I had this kind of curiosity to know, well, how do other people look at this? So I went to a series of vacation Bible schools one summer. Different friends I knew belonged to different churches, and so I just went to their vacation Bible school for a week. And I went to three or four of these, and one of them was a very Pentecostal type of church. And I had this experience down in the basement, and we're uh, making crafts and doing stuff and cleaning up. And then this person comes over to me as I'm cleaning up and leans over as I'm sitting down and says, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Mm. And it kind of, you know, how would I say, took me aback and provided a moment where the kind of time slowed down and this interior space opened up. And I had this exploration where I looked around and said, well, you know, I've grown up, I've done, I've done all these kind of things. Um, I've believe this all this way but when I looked inside myself phenomenologically it was kind of dark there was nothing there that that actually connected to in an existential kind of way and that was a bit terrifying as a 12 year old and I responded when I kind of came out of this reverie to this guy says of course yeah yeah don't worry I belong to this church down the road and then you know he left me alone and I was safe for the moment but that provoked a kind of a seed of existential uh, cognitive dissonance. Mm. So I belonged to the church. My dad was the president of the church council. I taught Sunday school when I was 14. I was an usher when I was 16, but I still had this nagging um, experience that said, yeah, and it doesn't mean something for me. Um, or what it means for me is not something that connects inside me. Well, I don't have a way to relate to it. So I got married young and codependent at 18. And the day we got married was the last day I went to church. Mm. Um, and I remember actively talking to our pastor and saying, I want to be taken off the membership. And, oh, come on, young people normally do this. And I said, no, I really, this is not for me. And then, you know, then I had the space as going to university, being married and everything where I could decide for myself. And that was a very intense period of seeking then. So I went to some mm. TM lectures and I mm. went to different, you know, um, I was in Vancouver, British Columbia. So there were different Asian practices that had little churches there and so on. And it wasn't until about six or eight months later that I came across a practice where I was like, oh, this is what I was looking for. And when that happened, what I see is it gave me kind of a frame of reference that helped answer all the questions I'd had so, so that I didn't feel that life was un, an unexplainable mystery. But it also gave me a, a direct sense of practice devoted to having my own experiences and cultivating my own understanding of those experiences. Hmm. And that you know, kind of at 18, 19, uh, gave me a very intense socialization process into the notion that as a part of this was, of course, that you could mature through different levels of being. 
You could go from just a physical consciousness to one more sensitive to the emotional body or the astral world, you could say. You could uh, gain an awareness of the role of memory or past lives in karmic uh, seeds and how those affected the different circumstances of your life. You could gain an awareness of the thought forms that you inhabited and that you lived out and start to have conscious mastery or discipline of those things. Mm -hmm. And all of that kind of gave me this understanding that as a spiritual being, you inhabited a mind, emotions, and body. And to be able to learn how to use your experience to mature through those became the kind of guiding orientation for how I understood development. So that Mm -hmm. 15 years later, when I encountered Brian Hall's work in one of my uh, master's degree courses in leadership, this didn't sound so strange. And shortly after was encountering Robert Keegan and Ken Wilber. And none of this seemed foreign. It just seemed, ah, here's other people talking about Mm. something similar in a different way. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And one of the things that comes up for me as I hear you speak about this, and especially when you talk about you know, there's the emotional body and the astral body. The, the, these aren't typically, at least as far as I'm aware, um, uh, front and center in, in mainstream developmental models. But one of the things that I have become aware of as I've sort of researched for this conversation and others is is there are lots of different models of adult development. Yes. And so I, I want to ask you, um, why are there so many models of adult development? And then furthermore, uh, do the higher stages of adult development look like one thing or are there in fact many different kinds of like adults in terms of different paths of development? Okay, well, now you just set out the next half hour or so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's do one question at a time. So why are there so many different models? So my, how would I say, take on that is that if you look and read um, philosophy throughout history, uh, different religious models, different uh, conceptual models of quantum physics, whatever it is, you have this, or at least for me, I have this sense that people have an experience of some phenomena, they have a curiosity about things, and they have tools to look at them. And the tools that they have to look at them are building blocks they gather as they grow up. So they are culturally sensitive, time sensitive, you know, what period in history, you know, what technologically sensitive for some kinds of inquiry in terms of what kind of technology do you have available to do Mm -hmm. certain types of inquiry and measure things. And so in that sense, you know, going back to, for instance, the Enlightenment and, you know, how did people talk about ego development they talked about going from a kind of um, anarchistic, egocentric self into someone who became civilized Mm. uh, in society. And then at some point, this civilizedness felt too stuffy and they wanted to break the bounds and be free thinkers and and think for themselves. And today we talk about that as egocentric, socialized mind or self-authoring in Keegan's model. So I think a lot of the reason there are different models is simply people come through different enculturation processes, mm. 
encounter different uh, discourses and conceptual tools, um, and then have different methods to measure. So as I understand it, Jane Lovinger, uh, you know, after World War II was looking at women's experience in America because they'd been working and now suddenly the men came back and took the jobs and now what do you do? And and mm. she found that women's experience was different and had different characteristics to it. And this led her to kind of have, you know, bootstrap ideas about it. And then, well, how do you test these ideas out? Well, are there ways we can measure these? And so you see this dynamic between trying to build a tool and a measuring instrument in terms of a sentence completion test, as well as how does that inform the model? And this, you know, happens iteratively over time. And then for any given individual, I think, or let's say there are people who tend to focus very deeply on a given line of inquiry. And then mm. they will tend to take the tools that they have used or developed and the models that they've constructed and really try to push them as far as they can. And it's often a different thing or a different kind of person to step across or between models. Uh, mm. That's a different kind of mindset. It requires a different kind of energy and it's hard to go very deep into one thing and equally deep into something else. Mm -hmm. So I think those kind of historical, cultural, um, discourse, construct, available measurement issues all lead to kind of different models being created. Mm -hmm. Got it. And and then so the second question, are, it, the, based on your, your answer that you've given so far, uh, it leads me to think that they're all kind of like, you know, the metaphor of the blind men and the elephant, but they're all kind of measuring the same thing from a different perspective. Is that, is that how you see it? Or are they, are there different paths of development that are really different? No, no. So it's clear that the measures are, how would it, yeah, uh, that's a good question. <sighs> measuring maybe different parts of the elephant, but is it always an <laughs> elephant? Um, so, so, you know, for instance, you know, ego development models from people like Jane Lovinger conceptualize the self and Robert Keegan's model also, you know, conceptualizes the self in relation to the world and so on. But if you look at Piaget and Kohlberg and Kurt Fisher and Michael Commons and this kind of line of thinking, it's much more around epistemological structures, mm -hmm. not necessarily the people, the, the the self that gets created is almost secondary, is almost a byproduct of mm. the type of structures of knowing that uh, are in play in a given situation. And so, now how to get back to the question, are they measuring the same thing? I think they measure different layers or aspects or um, facets mm. of how we show up in the world. I think that, uh, you know, some look at more, how would you say, central concern. So my experience is that skill theory, Kurt Fisher's work and, and built on kind of with Michael Commons and uh, Theo Dawson's work with Lectica and Zach Stein was involved in that, um, really tried to get at Piaget's original sense of 
not really caring about individuals, but caring about these structures, mm-hmm. cognitive structures, and what t- pr- what kind of things can you do with them? What do they enable you to do as thinking tools? And how do those work and evolve and develop? And then, of course, people as individuals have various um, access to different tools in those kind of adult development levels. But at the same time, then you have this other layer, which is about how do we relate to others in the self? How do we build ideas about who we are in relation to how others see us and how the things we try create certain effects in the world or don't, and we build a self-image? And all of this is somewhat related to or affected by these kind of thinking tools we have. But there's also a lot about what kind of um, mental models or thought forms do we take on early in life that are either interjected into us as a young child or we hook on to or adapt, you know, internalize and then live it out for the next hmm. 20, 30, 40 or 100 years? Yeah. And I, I think for me, part of the reason that this question feels so alive to me is that, you know, I've been participating in this sort of cultural moment, I think, on the internet and my weird part of the internet where there's a broad agreement that like, like I said before in the conversation, what we need now on the planet is many, many more like mature, developed humans so that we can kind of adequately respond to the, what was often called the meta crisis, right? The intersecting tangle of crises right. that we're now sort of bearing witness to. And uh, yeah. it, it, it seems really easy to say like, oh, we need more developed humans, right? Um, it seems like such a good idea. But then I think like, well, what development, whose development, developed to where? And if there's one thing called development, then that's very good to know. And we can all just get get behind that and, and go for it. But if there's like, you know, 12 different kinds of development, and perhaps some of them are more like embedded in and reflective of the kind of capitalist world system, as people like Bonita Roy or, um, suggest, then like, you know, it would be easy to promote certain kinds of development that actually just reinforce the status quo, whereas other kinds of development might open up a path to a different kind of future. And so I think it, maybe that's sort of why this question feels so important to me. I'm curious, like how that all lands with you. Yeah, well, there's many layers of response. Uh, I, I think that for sure, for me, there is not one thing called development that we all just got to figure out. Um, that the, And this goes to the question, you know, what is the purpose of our existence here in this world? What, what are we actually doing here? But if you go to this notion of uh, a meta-crisis, you know, I've also heard, you know, and for decades, you know, people come to these things and say, well, it's really a crisis mm-hmm. of consciousness. That, that was a kind of loose way I heard quite a long time ago of people describing, I think Frischoff Capra, for instance, was one of the people that described this set of crises in a systemic way and said, you know, the roots of it really come to consciousness. Or David Bohm, who, uh, whose work I got into quite a lot, you know, as a physicist, uh, who studied with Jiddu Krishnamurti as an Eastern mystic and integrated these worlds. 
who then influenced uh, MIT's uh, System Thinking Organizational Learning Dialogue Projects. There was a real deep inquiry into this question of, well, what are we trying to mature or develop? And it's really the the thought forms, the thinking that operates um, kind of automatically, and how do we find a way to step outside of that system to be able to, as you were kind of alluding to, you know, not just get better at reinforcing what's already bad or problematic and not treating development in that way. Uh, And then another facet of that that comes up when I hear you describe those things is, of course, a lot of what we're talking about then are social systems about how do we construct a society um, to live in. And I was thinking of um, this guy named Richard Mayberry. He's a kind of futurist, um, economist, different kind of thinker, but he'd done a lot of research on justice systems across the world in different periods of time and different societies. And in that, he came to this idea that everything could boil down to uh, 17 words in two sentences, that all these systems of justice said, do all you agree to do? And do not encroach on another person or their property. Hmm. Now, in terms of developing, could we develop a self-awareness that would allow us to kind of track and be aware of how well we are keeping our agreements or doing everything we've agreed to do or said? And how well are we uh, staying in our space and respecting the space of others? And of course, then you get into all these kind of questions. Well, we can respect the space of you know terrorists and let them terrorize us, but that's not very healthy. But then, of course, are they equally um, you know respecting our space? And then, how do you get into all the kind of um, unintentional collaboration mm-hmm. that happens where people are trying to justify different? limiting ideas, different beliefs that seem to be at odds because they're held in a kind of rigid way and people need to, you know, feel safe and build their identity around these things and that whole issue of building a sense of identified being becomes problematic and so we have this attachment and need to justify and, and so on and it gets glued to all these kind of particular details of cultural and time-sensitive beliefs that then feel threatened by other ones. And so then we try to, you know, squash the other to make ourselves safe. So all these uh, these larger questions that you're raising, I think, uh, are very uh, difficult to answer because they really require this inquiry into mm. why are we here? So I'm curious about what your sense of why we're here. Yeah, well, I don't, it's hard for me that, that question, I notice when I hear that question, my mind just kind of blanks. Like I don't, I don't feel like I have an answer that I can really trust yet. I think I do feel like right now it, it seems that we're here to navigate 
this transitionary period. Like I really like Zach Stein's frame of being in a time between worlds. Like uh, the the inquiry that I've been on mm-hmm. this podcast has just made it very clear to me. Although if you're listening and you, and you have contradictory evidence, please reach out that we are in the midst of a kind of very difficult choice point for the human species. And we might go towards like an ecological sort of sustainable civilization, like perpetually so, or we might go to, you know, Mad Max kind of dystopia. And um, so given that, it seems like what we're here to do is to navigate that skillfully. At least that's how I conceive of my purpose, my life. Um, and so these questions of development, for me, it's it's about what kind of development affords skillful navigation in this time between worlds. And so I had somebody on my on the show the other day, and we talked about the virtue of courage. That that perhaps, like, can we? It, that, that perhaps that's the kind of development or capacity that we want more humans to have now. This kind of courageous truth telling. And how would we create deliberately developmental spaces that foster that particular human capacity? Because I, I, I kind of buy Bonita Roy's, at least as I understand her critique, that like, you know, so many of the uh, kind of like develop, human development consulting companies that I see are all about complexity, you know, thinking complexity. Mm-hmm. And it does seem like she calls, she says that complexity is like the brute force of the knowledge economy, right? It's just like the new version of having the biggest stick. And it actually plays directly into a lot of the forces that are breaking the biosphere. And so like, I'm very suspicious of of that kind of development and wanting to, I guess, open up space for other kinds. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so um, yeah. Bonnie's a longtime friend of mine. We've had all sorts of conversations around these kind of things from time to time. And I think that the, there, there is a tendency just because that certain systems are so dominant to make um, assumptive associations. And so I, I agree that the cognitive complexity is kind of the new um, coin of the realm mm. in a certain way. And at the same time, I don't think it's a given uh, either way that people will use that wisely or not wisely. Uh, and whether it, those models or, I would say, people who are advocating those models most often have, uh, a, what did I say, are earlier in their journey or are doing something with them based on a degree of learning about the nuances and sophistication of them and a degree of, just, um, what did I say, naivety mm-hmm. around them. And at the same time, they will have, again, this kind of tacit set of being at a certain place mm-hmm. in the world and being subject to different value systems, different economic model, different whatever that can be critiqued. And I think those things can be critiqued separate from whether one is thinking more complexly or less mm. complexly about it. Mm. So, so for me, they're not necessarily wedded together. There may, may be many cases 
where people are unconsciously doing that in a way that uh, enables a reinforcement of that kind of thinking of different value systems, whether it be capitalist or otherwise. At the same time, I don't think that it's a necessary, um, it's just a, I wouldn't even say a coincidence, but it's, it's together in time and space in our culture, but I don't think it absolutely has to be. Yeah, and I, I recall in our previous kind of pre-call conversation, you there were two things that really struck me related to this topic. One was you shared an article in the Integral Review, which um, about uh, analyzing the 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 complexity, the thinking complexity of a serial killer, right? Was that and and saying, yes. like, oh, this person is actually quite a complex thinker. Well, he wasn't a serial. He was a mass murderer in Norway. Uh, he bombed the parliament buildings and then went off to this island and shot 77 young kids on a political retreat. I mean, it was really horrific. And in a small country where everybody knows everybody, um, everybody was touched in some way. And so there were people who looked at the things he'd written and his mentors writing and saw that there was, in strict terms of pure cognitive complexity, he was quite a complex thinker. But this is not new either. One of my mentors um, in my master's degree wrote an article on transformational leadership. And of course, again, it's a construct. It's being developed. The idea is, you know, that there's something about how the that kind of leadership is raising the moral values of followers, is changing the structure of their thinking and so on into more mature and complex ways. But the way that got operationalized allowed him to show how both Hitler and Gandhi would qualify as mm. transformational leaders. And so, of course, then there's something wrong with this picture. And so what he looked at was the distinction between Gandhi as uh, operating on this principle of self-transcendence, always going beyond and reducing the sense of self to almost nothing and going beyond a limited mm. sense of self, as where Hitler was in a kind of constant state of being mm. self-embedded and everything was about reinforcing his egocentric mm. view of the world. Mm. Now, you can have great complexity and power cognitively in both modalities. And I think this is why I like, you know, a modern version of this is the work of the Arbinger Institute, they talk about uh, being in or out of the box or having a heart at war or a heart at peace uh, or having an outward mindset or an inward mindset. And I think this kind of moral yeah. dimension of how do we look at other people and how do we relate to ourselves. Um, we There was something we talked about a little while ago around you know, we can build up an identity or we can have an inquiry or you talked about courage and speaking truth. Of course, what I thought about then was, yeah, there's lots of people that speak their truth or a truth or the truth in some way. But there's always a, a set of tacit um, beliefs and assumptions and things behind that. And so I think where is the courage to do radical self-inquiry, to be able to deconstruct one's own sense so that you can advocate for something and at the same time 
understand that your advocacy is subject to whatever frailties or subjectness you you are mm. given to. Mm. Yeah, I really love that, and it's um, yeah. What what's coming to me now is that yeah, this this drive towards complexity is sort of like more or less morally neutral. I mean, I think there's a way in which complexity by itself tends to bend towards uh, uh, amoral uh, behavior because then you this, there's something about the way that the complex mind relates to nature without a kind of bedrock and moral sensibilities and self-transcendence. And so, yeah, what, how does that, yeah. I think that's, yeah, so I think this is the thing, and people talked about this decades ago saying, wow, we've got all this technological advancement, but not the moral advancement. And I think it's it's no different if we have more complex thinking tools without the parallel kind of moral development um, or self-maturity or, I want to say, cleansing of illusions, uh, you know, an ongoing process of trying to maintain Mm. one's humility in the face of reality, whatever you want to say. Um, I think if those do not go in parallel, then of course you get uneven development, you could say, and you can have great thinking complexity, um, but do, you know, what's the the classic example of the uh, people working for the Nazis that developed Zyglon B gas to use the gas chambers to gas all the Jews. You know, very technically sophisticated work they're doing, but the moral dimension of it, of course, they're caught in a time and a system and all these things. And, you know, do you question authority? And so there's all sorts of considerations and constraints that are driving people to attend to certain things and face them and not face mm. certain other things. And this is where I think the courage to face things in oneself mm. that are driving one's own behavior are, are, how would I say, I guess you notice things first in others in the world. That's easier to see somebody else being an idiot. <laughs> um, but eventually you notice that, wow, I noticed that because maybe I've done that too, or maybe I'm prone mm. to that. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the um, trends or, or the the lines of inquiry that wasn't clear before I started speaking with people, but is now becoming clear, is that the form of development that's most intriguing to me and that I think feels like it's most being called for, at least in, in the arena that I'm sort of investigating, is, is this sort of like moral development or this sort of like uh, virtue virtue development. And I'm curious, like, what you know about, like, what is there research? Is like, where, can you orient me to that kind of um, uh, arena of development? Like, what 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 goes on there? Is that something that's been well studied? Yeah, tell me about it. I don't really know. Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, lots of different things come to mind for me. So, I think that um, there's a, a guy named Terry Warner, and he was um, or is a Mormon philosopher at Brigham Young University. He wrote a book called Bonds That Make Us Free, and 
it was his kind of inquiry that led to the Arbinger Institute work. And so understanding kind of the development of our ability to, um, how do I say, in a very simple terms, not take ourselves too mm-hmm. seriously. Uh, you know, because we can get very fired up and get a lot of emotions stirred up and energy behind a certain belief or idea, and then later find out that that was actually not really what we thought it was. It may be partially true, but maybe not all the way we thought. And people, you know, there's history is littered with people doing things with great intentions, but finding out later it wasn't so great. So that's one body of research. There's, of course, people doing research on stages of faith. Um, Started out with, um, I think, Fowler's name, and there's a guy I've been taught or seen about, um, or Murchie, more recently built on that. And these are kind of models of how do we relate to these kind of existential belief systems, whether they be spiritual practices or religion or so on. So then that comes to, for me, this notion of what is spiritual development? Um, How does that whole field, which has really in some ways blossomed in recent times where people are often taking this more seriously, taking up different kinds of practices, like such as myself and youth and say, oh, you know, the the constructs and, and um, rituals and all the kind of things I was brought up in didn't make sense. So you look for something else and you try and then grow in that. Um, and I see that for myself, there is a way in which spiritual development is more spiritual unfoldment, that there is some mm-hmm. kind of core as spiritual beings that has gotten encumbered with uh, incoherent thought forms and beliefs and emotions and ideas and all the things that go with that and led us to create uh, circumstances and conditions in the world that are less than ideal and then collectively those contribute to these kind of meta crises. Um, And so for me, a lot of this is that any kind of spiritual practice or tradition that grounds one in a practice of cleansing one's own attachment to uh, thoughts and feelings and beliefs. Not that you don't have them, but you don't have the same, Mm -hmm. you're not subject to Mm -hmm. them in the same way. And so you can consider them and you can have greater discernment is, is this idea or this truth actually still relevant or have I learned something new? Have the circumstances I've encountered enabled me to see something about the world or about myself that enables me to be more mature, more compassionate, more discerning, more wise, Mm. more helpful? Mm. Yeah. I mean, so I love the work that you've done that I've seen to kind of connect this movement of self-transcendence or spiritual un- unfoldment and what we typically associate with like uh, human development. And uh, I'd love to explore a little bit the immunity to change framework and how you sort of expanded that in the paper that I read that you sent me. Um, uh, does that sound like a good place to go here? 
Yeah, so... And, and sorry to interrupt, but maybe the first thing to do, just because, uh, again, the audience may not be familiar with the immunity to change, could you could you kind of give a snapshot of what that is to, to begin with? Yeah. Okay, sure. I, so, uh, yeah, I'll zoom back again. So if I go back to the kind of biographical thing that I had talked about where I dropped the church and kind of took up a practice and kind of embedded in that. I dropped out of university at the same time and I took up university again 12 years later and did that for 12 years. And there was an explicit kind of intentionality for me to find what are bridges in the world that I can connect to and and try and develop where I see other people uh, journeying down this path and there's things I can learn from them and there's things that I can maybe build on. So in that sense, coming across consciousness development work, integral theory became a form of those kind of bridges and Robert Keegan's work uh, to try and support people's growth and development is what or how I see what led to the immunity to change process. So the idea is that we are subject to, that is, um, or held by or unconsciously run by certain assumptions, beliefs, whatever. This is kind of related to cognitive behavioral um, theories of psychodynamics and so on. So in order to foster development, there's this ongoing process of taking things that we're unconscious about and bringing them into awareness, kind of enlightenment in the sense of shining a light on and making a conscious object of reflection, some uh, belief or assumption or perception, and being able to test and refine it. Um, the same kind of process is what Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics for, saying that we don't make decisions on purely rational models. There's all sorts of biases going on. And these biases tend to happen in this fast system one thinking where they're automatic and instant and we need to use kind of system two slow thinking to take those out and check them and kind of tune them up and refine them and polish them so they work better and serve us better. So in that sense, the immunity to change idea was a simple process for people to help them take an aspiration, understand why it was aspirational because they're not doing it now, <laughs> And there's all sorts of, you know, evidence of that. And then, well, why are you doing these things? Well, there's some usual root fear behind that. Uh, I don't want to speak up more because I'm afraid I'll look like a fool. Um, and then what you see is there's a self-protective mechanism there. And that self-protective mechanism is built on a belief or an assumption. So I believe that if I tell people what I really think, they'll think I'm an idiot, they'll shun me or marginalize me, I won't have friends, I'll, you know, whatever. And if you can test these beliefs, then you have the ability to kind of expand your um, ability to operate in the world. You kind of unchain yourself from some limits. So I had... Um, I, I use that work and that model quite a lot in the professional work I do, uh, both at the university and in consulting work, as a tool to help people just kind of shine a light on some subjective aspect of their own experience that has been holding them back. Or, you know, they wonder why they're not getting the results that they intend or want or try for. 
And then this can often help them see that, ah, well, I wasn't aware that I was also doing this and wanted this as well. For myself, all of this was also being approached through the Arbinger Institute work and Terry Warner's work, but also David Bohm's work, um, this notion of thought as a system, that there is this way in which all these thought forms and the ways they're tied together, uh, not just in intellectual abstract thought forms, but also in the emotions and the physiological responses, the neurochemistry, all of these things are kind of one system that is very tightly connected and difficult to kind of break free of in a way. And so being curious about those three different lines of inquiry, I thought, when they talk in immunity to change, they talk about how do we evolve or mature ourselves. So I wonder, well, what do they mean or what is implicit in this notion of self? And I was very much provoked by David Bohm's notion that his inquiry led to this core understanding that an identified sense of self was the fundamental limit or, or constraint or incoherence in the system of thought, because then it created a sense of self and a sense of the world that had a fixedness to it. And, and in reality, he saw that things were much more dynamic and evolving. So a creative sense of being, that was the phrase that, I don't know what I am, but it's constantly revealing itself. That that notion of a more dynamic, fluid sense of being rather than an identified sense of being led me to think well what could happen if we tried to look deeper at this and so i did a literature review and analysis and various things and in trying to understand that came across a dissertation on wisdom that referenced francisco varela's use of some buddhist term of the virtuality of self and that gave me a, a construct to say, okay, what, what I sense here is that we can't get away from using thought forms and using a sense of self. How do we construct what a self is, who we are in, in this world of human embodiment? But if we construct it in a very rigid way, then we're prone to defending that and all the kind of incoherences that come from that and then the need to justify those incoherences. And this goes back to not doing things we agree to do or getting in other people's spaces, all of those kind of things. And so the idea of the virtuality of self was that if we could enculturate this notion that the self is kind of like an avatar in a game or a character in a movie that you can gain experience from kind of allowing yourself to drop into and vicariously engage with but you can also easily step away from it although sometimes during a real you know nowadays what is it people binge watch whole series or something because you get so absorbed in the characters and you can't you know do without seeing what happens next. It's, it's your life depends on it, so to speak. Or you can get addicted to, you know, playing games or whatever, and, and you, you kind of believe you're in the character. But if you 
can have us an idea that the sense of self has this fluidity to it, this virtuality, which doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but its existence is not ontologically fundamental. And that gives this kind of breathing space to say that, well, if something happens to my ego, my sense of self, it doesn't mean I die. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, to offer some of what I'm seeing too, as I done research for this conversation in this, this part of the podcast, like the immunity to change work seems broadly to be agreed upon as like a very good technology for human development. Like it seems like a lot of different people are using it. A lot of people respect it. And so the idea that there's this connection and between this movement of waking up to the virtuality of self and the capacity for us to escape the limits of our own immunity to growth is very compelling to me. And I, I think it makes it makes a lot of intuitive sense. I'm actually kind of surprised that the connection hasn't been made before. Uh, I, I haven't seen it made before, but like I know for me, I, this is kind of an anecdotal story, but you know, I'll go to go to therapists or whatever, or or do different growth modalities. And I think because I've meditated so much, the people I work with are always very surprised at how quickly I go through the process. You know, like it just it seems like there's something about right. taking yourself much less like yourself much less seriously that accelerates these movements of development because that which obstructs them is like a kind of fixed sense of self that is immune to change. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So a few years ago, I was, so the, the, the process to write this paper that you're referring to went on for about four years. I didn't get serious about it till the, you know, the last six months of it. But at the same time, I, I, did this immunity to change process for Zach Stein and a couple of other people's classes at Meridian University. And I was discussing this notion and Zach said, well, yeah, virtuality of self, that's a fifth order construct. In other words, it's not self-authoring, it's a self-transforming thing. And at the same time, I thought, well, yes, it is. And so it's not going to be native to many people. It's not going to be mm. obvious as a construct because it, it's, it's, not easy to see or work with in that sense. At the same time, we were looking into literature on wisdom. So my wife did her master's thesis looking at wisdom literature in relation to um, young people and programs on kind of self-mastery and these kind of things that go on in some schools these days. And that the research was showing that the acquisition of wisdom-related skills was most um, dominant between the ages of 18 to 25, and that from 25 on, it kind of flatlined, it tended to. So we have this image that people get older and wiser, but that seems to be, we know lots of old people who are cranky too, and they're not necessarily very wise. So what is it that enables people to learn from experience? And and so what we were proposing, you know, this is in relation to teaching leadership at undergraduate schools. And the idea that, well, if you give students 
um, who are at this stage, you know, in Keegan's model, they're, they're young sponges, right? They're being socialized into uh, formative ideas about themselves and the world and what to do, how to become a good person and all these things. And if you help them, give them kind of constructs that enable them to not take themselves so seriously, to grow and develop, to learn from experience, to reflect on experience, to uh, use discernment, to kind of iterate that, then it's much more likely to do what you were saying, that you have this core capacity that enables you to go quickly through a given developmental sequence. So you can learn a new skill or a new model or something quite quickly because you're not encumbered by having to undo or unlearn certain assumptions you have because you've cleaned up some of these things or you have a more robust, coherent foundation that allows you to go through the process better or you've built the motor to have this kind of learning cycle run faster. Yeah, I think there's, I, I really appreciate that um distinction that you're making and um you know i heard a meditation teacher once talk about like oh you know it's probably unlikely that we'll see massive numbers of people actually getting enlightened like that because it's quite hard to do he he thought mm-hmm. um but we could make the understanding of the emptiness of self more culturally mainstream and that that itself even if there wasn't the associated like direct experience of it, would make everything kind of better because yeah, it's exactly. more true. <laughs> and also that like it's it facilitates more, this other stuff. Yeah. Right. And, and it's more coherent as yeah, a platform and a meme that spreads through society. And it allows this kind of more fluid sense of how we engage the world rather than mm. defending a self all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I, I am curious, though, in, in, in making this connection between the immunity to change work and uh, kind of seeing the virtuality, seeing through the virtuality of self or however you want to frame it. Like I noticed, so like Ken Wilbur has been coming back into the media landscape recently. And one of his one of the things that he says is uh, he, he goes through the wake up, grow up, clean up, show up four facet yep. model. And he typically talks about how, like, well, what we now know very clearly is that waking up is distinct and different from growing up. And yet, with this link that you've just made, it would seem to suggest that there is some relationship between waking up and growing up. And I'm curious, like, how do you negotiate that relationship and understand what Ken is referring to? Or Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) Um, maybe let me step back for a moment because there are some other um, facets of that particular article and distinctions I was trying to make there that may uh, set the backdrop. Because for me, what happens is the kind of question you're asking now is always kind of driving me to dig deeper into the kind of tacit framework from which I'm looking at things. And so part of what the the inquiry in that article and, and doing all these kind of I don't know, was theoretical fumbling around with stuff um, was trying to understand, you know, what 
do we mean by awareness? So, you know, what is enlightenment? <laughs> you know, there's also, you know, I grew up with all sorts of mystical notions of enlightenment as some woo-woo-woo thing, you know, or some new agey thing, or is it as simple as being, um, having more light shone on or making an object of something you were subject to, so you're enlightened about your ignorance before? But what is the kind of more fundamental edge of that? And for me then, having then taken up a practice that was very grounded in this notion that we are soul and we have human experience. So it's not that we have a soul, because then it's the ego that is transitory, that is having this eternal thing. And that doesn't make sense logically to me. Mm. So saying that the thing that is eternal uh, has a temporal existence, okay. So what is the relationship between those? And what does awareness have to do with this? Uh, and so part of what I was trying to look at, and I was, you know, building on different formulations that I'd come across over decades, uh, people that seem to have a point here, a point there, and what I, and now I'm having to, I may not get it right, but uh, that awareness was the experiential realization of the virtuality of self. Hmm. And the notion there and the way this built up in the article is that if we see that the essence of being is somehow not limited to a fixed ontological temporal identity, but somehow has an existence beyond that, but inhabits this existence, then waking up, so to speak, is related to becoming aware, not conceptually or intellectually or abstractly, but having this experiential perceptual realization that, ah, this self, this ego, this identity, this human encounter um, is a vehicle of experience. And it's very real while I'm in it, and, it, and I should take it seriously, and, I, and, there's, and I'm responsible hugely for what I do with it, totally responsible for that. And it doesn't mean that that's all that I am about. That, that my existence is limited to that. And so enlightenment in that sense and waking up uh, to that notion is one thing, but then how does waking up, and the, I think this is your question, how does waking up inform growing up? And if growing up is seen, as you alluded to earlier, when Bonnie uh, kind of made these critiques of developmental models, if growing up is seen to just, add more complexity from a kind of uh, unquestioned assumption about the world, then you just make uh, more powerful ways to do stupid things. Or, you know, more, more robust shadows to do damage in the world with, you know, however you want to put it. And that yeah. there, so there is something about having a more coherent, uh, starting position for an inquiry about what informs growing up 
And I think part of what I remember from stuff I read of Ken's a long time ago was, of course, as you're in the human form, and um, yeah, one of his mentors, Francis Vaughn, you know, wrote about the inward arc. It's kind of like when you start out, you know, as a human being, there's not a sense of ego there. You know, you're more of an undifferentiated self. And the sense of ego and distinction between self and other and all these things and self in the world uh, comes gradually. And psychologically, I think they say the ego gets formed at two, three, four years old, somewhere in there as a distinct kind of personality. It's not, but then you know that there's a character to an individual from even before that. But in terms of the ego, and then how does the ego build up until you get to the stage in what you were asking about earlier, this kind of late stage, do they all look the same? Well, I don't know if they all look the same because I think we have an individuality that can show up in different ways, but there is often a similar process of deconstructing the sense of self. So as you become construct aware, you start to become aware that your sense of self is also constructed out of a bunch of other building blocks of ideas and thoughts that maybe have their own history. And you suddenly see that, wow, there's no basis. And this is what Francis Vaughn talked about is this kind of existential crisis where suddenly there's no ground under your feet. And, and you have this kind of moment of terror, which then can lead into a transpersonal or spiritual orientation where you see that, ah, there is a more fundamental beingness it's just not uh, constrained by the ego in that way. Yeah, so if I'm, I'm hearing you right, it's something like that waking up accelerates some forms of growing up, depending on the kind of growing up that we're inquiring about, but doesn't seem directly related or is kind of orthogonal to the development of complexity, which is often what people mean by growing up. And so with regards to that kind of growing up, it may or may not have anything to do with it. Yeah. So when Bonnie... Wait, wrote, am I hearing you right? Is that... Yeah. 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 No, no. Because, okay. And I'm making a reference. So when Bonnie wrote her first article, one of the things that she was working on in that model was this notion that all these epistemological things where complexity develops and all this are one whole, the whole realm and we can get caught up in that being the whole realm our attention is collapsed into. But mm -hmm. she had this model where she said, but there's something orthogonal to it. And it's, when you use that word, it triggered that uh, for mm -hmm. me. That mm -hmm. is something different. And it's that something different that also needs to be present and activated in some way. And that has, you know, so there can be, as you're saying, something where there is not a connection, yet at the same time, as soon as we dive back into the world, there is some way in which our realization or experience of that waking up informs how we grow up. Yes. Yeah. So another thing is coming up for me, and, and you may not want to comment on this. I totally understand if you don't, but I was getting into a little, like, Facebook uh, back and forth with a with somebody who's I think is part of like the rationalist movement. Are you familiar with like the rationalist subculture? Um, maybe, maybe not. I can imagine though. 
Yeah, I, I, my, my, my kind of uh, how I think of what they're attempting to do is is understand how rationality ought to work in the human mind, and then kind of teaching mental tools that help people become more rational. Okay. And I think a lot of it is oriented around like making better, more rational decisions. Mm-hmm. And that to some degree, like there's problems because human beings are irrational or acting irrational and they right, have to be rational right. or something. Yeah. Um, and so put kind of putting that slightly aside, one of the things that they said was something like, we now know pretty well that enlightenment doesn't make you a better decision maker. And I'm, I'm kind of agnostic about that. I, but I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on that, on that subject or anywhere that uh, we ought to look to kind of get more clarity about that um, mm. idea. Yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> decisions about what? You know, I think that's one question because there's, there's many realms and domains in which we need to make decisions and if they're decisions about the fundamental course of our life and how we engage in our relationships or in our uh, sense of career or whatever, um, that's one thing. But if it's about decisions about, um, you know, whether to use a two by four or a two by six in constructing some trusses, then I would want to rely on kind of uh, a given body of knowledge <laughs> so that the structure is stable and, and make decisions in a more rational way in that sense. Um, but there, so I want to say, I, you know, for decision-making, you need so much um, tacit knowledge is so active in the decision-making process. So there are so many things that are given as constraints within which you're making decisions. And so to, to make those tacit things more explicit and rational in terms of being conscious and analyzed and carefully looked at in relation to evidence and practice and so on, that that can be fine. I think those things can be great, but you've got to apply it in a given domain. Now, any given domain is set up with a given set of assumptions. So when you mention capitalist systems or things like this that are you know, contributing to global warming and so on and so forth in these meta crises. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which how those systems are enacted and how we make decisions within them. There, there's some quite fundamental philosophical choices that were made that were based on people's conceptions at a given time and and then people try to upgrade those and modernize it, but they don't always have the same depth of understanding or knowledge. So sometimes you get better ideas, sometimes you get not so better ideas. But they may look better at a given time because you don't know any better. So one of the people that I um, uh, studied with or, or kind of read about for a while was in this video, and he had this phrase that I remember. He said, you know, if a spiritual teacher says something false or incoherent from a very high level of consciousness, it's very difficult for the student to discern that incoherence because they don't have the same kind of tacit breadth or depth to to discern whether a given statement is true or not. 
Uh, and so you don't have the tools to make good decisions. And so people often just take what a guru says and, and act on it because they're the guru. And, and they don't have the, the way to critique or analyze those. So one of the things I appreciate in my own practice is that doubting everything that is said is one of the kind of fundamental practices that don't believe it just because the teacher says it. Go out and figure it out what it looks like for yourself. Hmm. I, I appreciate the um, complicatedness of your response to that question. I think it's exactly the right uh, direction to go. Um, but it's so important for me because uh, like it, it, I think the model of enlightenment that is I, I see most often nowadays is that, at least in my milieu, is that it's like the resolution of a per- simply the resolution of a perceptual bug. Like there's a bug in our perception mm-hmm. that suggests that there's a self in a world, but in fact that we can sort of refactor that and uninstall that bad code. And then we're like, it's much better, but it doesn't actually impact things like ethics or how we behave in the world. And I feel like that can't possibly be, I have, I have, I have a, a, a intuitive sense that can't possibly be true. And I'm, I'm kind of fighting for that. But what if, and just, there was a piece of that you said, so yeah, you take a piece of code out and you reprogram it. And, but I think, yes. And you've got to be doing that constantly in all domains. <laughs> Mm. it's not a you know a given pro- and i think this is the challenge with many models is they you know it's a static process we just get to the better state mm. and then everything will be fine and, and i think that is one of the more fundamental kind of incoherencies